Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine, and on today's show, we're going to meet some young activists behind recent protests in Fresno. Topics like Black Lives Matter or topics like racial injustice are really kind of pushed to the sideline and kind of like you don't talk about it. And San Francisco. The ideas that my generation believes in is a lot more radical. I don't have faith in our political system at all. I don't have faith in politics at all. And we'll hear how an author in L.A. is hosting an online book club that's become a space to reflect on anti-blackness in the Latinx community. For us, it's so easy to blame everything on whiteness, right? It's like, oh, white people this, white people that. What's harder is for us to stop and say how are we perpetuating this whiteness as well. Plus, people of color are getting sick with COVID at a higher rate than white people. Why it's important to have contact tracers who speak multiple languages. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. White supremacy has gone on far too long. The pandemic of white supremacy has plagued our collective consciousness to the point where a black body's worth is nothing more than just a hashtag. That's Joshua Slack, who helped organize a recent protest in Fresno. He's 24. And he grew up in a nearby military town called Lemoor, where just 5% of the population is black. He says it was a real shock when he moved there from Virginia when he was 10 years old. We had learned so much about black history growing up that when I came out to Lemoor, it felt almost as if that had been watered down and I was losing a sense of my identity. He says he was one of the few black kids at his school and the only one who had an afro or his hair in braids. His dad was a film professor, and he noticed his son struggling with his identity. He had decided to take it upon himself to really educate me on our black experience, our black culture, history, by showing me different movies and everything, just so I had a sense of who it is that I was and where it is that I come from. I will escape from this place. I am a Mandinka warrior and I will do it. 
I believe the first one he showed me was Roots, uh, Alex Haley's Roots, which is a classic that a lot of African-American families have watched. I was kind of being exposed to a different side of, um, of history that I was being taught, a more graphic version of it. Yes, there's going to be a racial explosion. And a racial explosion is more dangerous than an atomic explosion. And then after Roots, he showed me the Spike Lee film Malcolm X. Another chapter in history Joshua hadn't learned about in school. There's going to be an explosion because black people are dissatisfied. Watching films with his dad helped inspire him to become an actor and study drama at Fresno State. He says black students made up less than 3% of the student body when he graduated two years ago. Fresno, the Central Valley itself, is a very agriculture country kind of driven town where topics like Black Lives Matter or topics like racial injustice are really kind of pushed to the sideline and kind of like you don't talk about it. Joshua points to the track record of the Fresno Police Department. Former police chief Jerry Dyer was sued multiple times for discrimination. The city paid $300,000 to settle a lawsuit alleging Dyer sang the plantation song Shortening Bread when referring to black officers. His department was also repeatedly sued by family members of people his officers shot and killed. Dyer was recently elected mayor. Honestly, it's just such a bizarre, bizarre, like, experience. It feels like that we are literally in a police state at this point. And I'm trying not to get too angry, but it's just been such a, like, dominating force and almost suffocating the life out of the minority uh, groups out here. Joshua and the other organizers of the Fresno protests have issued a set of demands, including firing racist police officers and establishing a council where Black and Latinx people would have a say in hiring the next police chief. Joshua says the stakes are high when you're organizing in a conservative part of the state and dealing with counter-protesters. And the counter-protesters were really, like, the counter-protesters that we kept seeing were just people that were there just to agitate, just to be against the movement with no real agenda rather than just wanting to, like, tear down anything that was progressive. Like, there's a lady that said that, do we even need another civil rights movement? And I'm just, I look at that, I'm like, do you not see what's happening to us? Black rage and anger is 100% justified. Joshua Slack has been sheltering in place with his parents in Lemoore, but he plans to return to acting school in L.A. He says he wants to be part of the progress he's seeing in theater and film and play Black characters that are three-dimensional, not just one-note stereotypes. I would really like to be part of something that's inspiring in a way that doesn't require Black trauma to be seen as powerful, because... Uh, The struggle of being a Black actor is that that is a lot of what we get. He says he'll draw on the lessons he's learned organizing protests as he pursues a career in the arts. The deliberate erasure of our history and those that died for our freedom and liberation has gone on far too long. We have been domesticated to believe that a certain kind of protest... We are here to acknowledge the black people who built this country against their will, the black women who birthed this country, the reparations we still have yet to take, not receive. 
And that's 17-year-old Simone Jacques in San Francisco. She organized a recent protest there through Instagram. At one point, she stood up on top of a vintage yellow school bus and spoke to the tens of thousands of people who'd gathered. We call on your spirits to protect us and to propel us through this march and the beginning of this revolution. It wasn't like inspiration or, wow, I really want to do something for my community. It was more of like, I love my community so much and I love the people around me so much that I never want them to have to lose somebody they love or one of them get hurt. Simone's the daughter of immigrants. Her mom was born in Mexico. Her dad is from Haiti. I love my dad. I love my cousins. I love my tios. All of them have had interactions and situations dealing with police brutality and being victims of police brutality. And like, I'm fighting for them. She says she's also fighting for the mission, the historically Latino neighborhood in San Francisco where her mom and her grandparents settled in the 1960s. Today, gentrification has turned many of the panaderias and botanicas into hipster coffee shops. I'm fighting for my home. Like, I'm fighting for my human rights and my ability to breathe air into my lungs. But Simone says it's sometimes hard to explain to the Mexican side of her family what her experience is like as a young Black woman. Growing up, there was um, a flip side of like being Afro-Latina and people are being surprised when I speak Spanish. I still experience hella racism in my, or hella anti-Blackness in my communities um, and my family. The United States' agenda has always been to profit off of black and brown bodies. Like the other day, my tia texted me and she was like, you know, I would have come, but I didn't get an invite. I don't have to extend an invitation or educate anybody. That's not my job. If you love me enough as your black niece, as a black person, a black woman, you show up, period. You know, sometimes my mom doesn't understand. Because my mom is Mexican. Simone lives with her mom and her grandma. They're community activists, too. They organize things like the local Carnaval Parade and celebrations for Mexican Independence Day. The ideas that my generation believes in is a lot more radical. I don't have faith in our political system at all. I don't have faith in politics at all. These systems were not built for us. They were built on top of us. So why do I care? if I need a permit for the city. I don't care. Are you kidding me? I don't care. Um, This isn't a parade. So why would I go through the system when I want radical change? We're looking for the police department to be defunded. We do not need police. We are tearing down this entire system that was built on indigenous people, that was built on black people, that was built on immigrants and making a system a decolonized system that is built for us. That means changing our curriculums. That means building our own schools with money that is taken from the police department, taken from the military. I asked Simone where she sees herself in five years, in 10. I see myself getting the education that I'm deserving of as a black woman. I see myself taking freedom with other black and brown people and protecting my right to happiness. I think the most radical thing as black and brown people that we can do is be happy. 
We just heard about how youth activist Simone Jacques struggles with anti-blackness within the Mexican community as an Afro-Chicana. Now we're going to hear about a space that's helping people, particularly Latinx millennials, have conversations about colorism within their own families and communities. The Josie Book Club highlights new Latinx writers and sparks discussions about the life experiences that shape their stories. Writer Josie Marreyes hosts the virtual book club from L.A., and KQED reporter Marisol Medina Cadena is one of thousands who tune in. Since sheltering at home, my Friday routine includes posting up on my couch, phone in one hand, tea in the other, tuning in to the Yossi Book Club on Instagram. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It is Friday. Welcome to the Yossi Book Club Hour. Here's Yossi Mar Reyes talking with author Julissa Arce. Who is the author of Someone Like Me. What is kind of like the journey that you take within the book that you wrote? So I spent a lot more time talking about what it was like to be a child in Mexico when my parents were already in the U.S. Uh Um, You know, I was in Mexico from the time I was three to the time I was 11. Yosimar was born in Guerrero, Mexico and raised in East San Jose. A self-described and documented socialite, he writes stories about his upbringing and post-cultural critiques that are humorous but all too real. For his book club, Yosimar typically talks to Latinx writers about their creative process and what it's like navigating the white-dominated publishing world. 80% of the people who work in publishing are white. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, there's a lot of explanations that you have to do. Like, they really wanted the word undocumented to be in the title. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that because mm-hmm. I felt like, yes, I was undocumented and it shaped my life in a big way. But, like, that's not the only thing about me. So I had to fight that really hard. Yosimar also recommends books that celebrate the range of Latinx experiences in the U.S. We're reading queer, indigenous, Central American, and Afro-Latinx writers. Plus, Yossi's book club breaks down barriers that have prevented some people from getting into reading. For a lot of us brown kids, hood kids, or kids that come from a specific kind of schooling, we learned early on in our conditioning that reading was a burden. You know, when your teacher was like, you're on time out, go read a book for 30 minutes. But for me, it was like, how do I shift that and actually start telling people reading is pleasurable, something that's going to elevate your understanding of things, and it, doesn't, it should not feel like a burden. Last week, as the uprisings against police violence continued, Yosimar shifted his focus away from books. He addressed how we, non-Black Latinx people, need to be talking with our families about the legacies of racism in Latin America and the U.S. Here he is breaking it down with his guest of the week, Curly Velasquez. I think for us, it's so easy to blame everything on whiteness, right? It's like, oh, white people this, white people that. It's It's very easy. It's just like so easy. Mm-hmm. What's harder is for us to stop and say how are we perpetuating this whiteness as well. It's really true how, like, you know, light skin is praised in our communities and things like that. Like, how can we have those conversations with our family while acknowledging the colonization that we're taught in their own countries? It's significant that Yosimar is calling out anti-Blackness within Latinx communities because colorism has been ingrained in our culture since European colonization. Yet it's commonly downplayed. 
The contributions and struggles of Afro-Latinx are often ignored while many Latinx buy into European beauty standards and criminalizing stereotypes of dark-skinned people. And as Yossi Mott explains, this is why some Spanish-language news outlets have focused on the looting instead of the national outrage over police killings. It's what prevents some Latinx from seeing the link between the Black Lives Matter movement and the immigrant rights movement. Both are addressing policing and incarceration. So for me, it's more like, how are you defending the same laws, replicating the same bigotry of the same things that we're impacted by? Because we cannot yeah. see beyond the color of the skin of the folks we're fighting for. So what is, where's that coming from, baby girl? For Oakland resident Najla Gomez, the book club offers a space to think more deeply about the narratives and perspectives she's consuming. I think it just expands both our imagination of what is possible, but also our empathy right towards each other. Um, and I think that's so needed right now. Learning our shared histories of colonization is a first step to unpacking our own internalized racism. But what comes next? What could our communities accomplish if we could understand Black and brown struggles as interconnected? These are the questions that people are raising within the Yossi Book Club. There is much work to be done right now, but conversations like these are a starting point. For The California Report, I'm Marisol Medina-Cadena. As people are protesting white supremacy and racism, we can't forget that the coronavirus pandemic is far from over, and it's continuing to disproportionately affect communities of color. As California develops strategies to contain the virus, like contact tracing, the state is focusing on recruiting people who speak multiple languages to reach some of those communities that have been hard hit. Those are sensitive conversations. But as our health correspondent April Demboski tells us, tracers who can talk to people in their native language are far more likely to break through. At the same time Eric Chan started training to become a contact tracer, he started watching the news in Chinese. He wanted to brush up on his Cantonese, especially the medical terms for the pandemic, so it would be easier to talk to people who weren't comfortable with English. Quite often, just speaking that language directly instead of having the interpreter on the line, it helps a lot with the communication and the trust. Early on, Chan noticed the potential for things to get lost in translation. In Cantonese, the words for quarantine and isolation are the same word. It's called gali. It's kind of mean just separating from others. Quarantine is for people who've been in contact with someone who's sick and have to stay home. Isolation is more like if you have symptoms already. It's when you know you're sick and have to isolate yourself in a room separate from your family. 
Normally, Chan works as a financial analyst in the tax assessor's office. He's very detail-oriented, and he wanted to get this right. So he called his colleague Vivian Poe, who also speaks Cantonese. We're very used to explaining tax code to taxpayers, so we we are we our tendency is to just to go specific. They decided every time they translated each word, they would give the definition too. So to make sure not just to state the terms, but also explain what they are. And also the duration of the quarantine isolation are different, so that's why we want to get it as specific as possible. Half the people who have died from COVID-19 in San Francisco are Asian American. Statewide, Latinos account for 54% of coronavirus infections, even though they make up 39% of the population. John Jacobo with the Latino Task Force says having contact tracers from the communities that are most affected by the virus is critical for getting accurate information about how it's spreading. We have to have culturally competent contact tracers that understand the cultural customs and the language. For example, he says, take the common polite response among Latinos when you ask, how are you? Do you need anything? And the first answer is always, oh, no, no, I'm good. I don't need anything. But if you pry a little more, you get the real answer, which is, you know, actually, maybe. In la lucha contra el COVID-19, el rastreo de the state is running PSAs like these to encourage Latinos to first pick up the phone when contact tracers call. If you test positive, you'll have access to medical treatment regardless of your income or immigration status. I speak Spanish, so most of the calls that I do make are to those who only speak Spanish. Some of the folks contact tracer Jasmine Flores has talked to have been worried about revealing their immigration status. While they may open up to her initial questions. Do you need anything? Do you need to take a test? Do you need help with food and supplies? They're wary about some of the others. You know, who's living with you? Where do you live? Some people might not want to share all of that information. She tells them nothing goes beyond the health department. You just let them know that this is all confidential. It's just to help you and to help others and to help try to resolve the situation, stop it from getting worse. So far, San Francisco contact tracers have reached 91% of people they try to call. And program leaders say the overwhelming sentiment is that they're receptive. I'm actually quite surprised at how open they can be and how they actually kind of feel like chatting, I feel like. We're just chatting about them and how they're doing and their family. The bottom line is, if people don't want to share personal information, they don't have to. Contact tracers will tell them where they can find information about the virus or get tested on their own. For The California Report, I'm April Dimboski. And finally today, we're going to hear from a doctor who spent the last few months treating patients with COVID-19. Dr. Sajan Patel grew up in Orange County, and he now treats patients who've been hospitalized at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. He started keeping an audio diary in early April. It looks almost like a movie hospital unit. The lights are really bright. The hallways are, are empty and clean. There are PPE holders everywhere. The patients today were really grateful. Um, It was challenging, though, to make a connection since my entire face, including my mouth, 
my eyes are, are behind goggles or a face shield. Um, it's hard for a patient to even know who you are. I'd come into the room and say, I'm Dr. Patel. I'm taking over for the last doctor. They're, they're happy to see you, but it's hard to tell there's a human there. I thought of that, and what I did later on is I called that same patient via Zoom. It was really nice because I yanked out my mask and I told him, this is my face. And he said, it was really nice to see the whole face and it made our connection that much more real and alive. Um, And he said that he hopes that someday he recognizes me in a grocery store. Um, And I thought that was really nice and a great way to end the day. And I am signing off. It is 4.23, and it's late, and I just had a long shift today. I was on what's called long call, which starts early in the morning and goes late to the day where I'm admitting new patients till the evening. Had a few reflections today, you know, one patient on my service that's homeless and trying to figure out how to safely um, discharge him from the hospital has been challenging because he's requiring a lot of care coordination, including we'd like to retest him, he may need surgery soon, we'd like him to have follow-up. Currently, I don't know how I'll reach him. We're trying to make, he has a cell phone that was donated. I'll call him, he'll call me. There's also just a lot of unknowns of how stable his housing will be once his COVID recovers, is there going to be a way that we he can have long-term housing after that? Because for now, he may be able to recover in a hotel. But what happens after that? You're learning on the fly almost. And new data is coming out and guidelines and policies and practices almost seemingly daily. And I don't think I've ever read this much in my life on a daily basis to try to keep up there's a certain amount of excitement and there's a certain amount of pride you take um, in feeling like you know you're helping. It is June 5th and I'm just finishing up a stint on the service here taking care of COVID patients. COVID has just become normal. It's what we take care of. It's part of what we do. Things that were difficult or cumbersome in the past like PPE, uh, getting it on, getting it off feels like second nature now. Um, I'll say in terms of patient numbers, they still remain low if we do see spikes because of the city opening up or because of the, the demonstrations. We'll be in a lot better shape and prepared. Um, this is what we do now. This is part of being a healthcare provider in 2020. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that we've gotten to this point. The irony is, as healthcare workers, we feel more connected than ever during this pandemic, but we can't be with each other. We have to maintain distance, and I feel like I've got some of that back with the group I'm with, and I really cherish that, and it means so much. And it's something that I won't take for granted when this is all over and I get to run into people in the hallways and just catch up. Yeah, so I've I've learned a lot, and I've changed a lot as a doctor um, and as a person. I'm signing off.
That was Dr. Sajan Patel sharing the audio diary he's kept over the last few months as he's treated COVID-19 patients in San Francisco. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our technical producer is Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Our producer is Amanda Font. Our team also includes Laura Clivens, Erica Kelly, David Marks, and Ariella Markowitz. Special thanks this week to Tim Haydock from the Youth Leadership Institute. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing, through science, the interdependence of all living systems. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.